Well, good morning. <laughs> you know, Ash Wednesday was, uh, was last Wednesday, and usually, traditionally, you give something up, and I think that our, our church building has given up technology in various forms, so... I'm really excited about being able to preach with a handheld because if I make a really good point, expect a mic drop. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> How you guys doing? How's everybody doing? It's, it's amazing that uh, I started this sermon series and that feels like forever ago. And this has been a heavy kind of series, right? It's about prophets and about how it points to the gospel, but listening to the prophets means really coming to grips with brokenness and sin and God's holiness and his judgment, his right to be judged, but also as a redeemer. And, you know, when we were planning this sermon series, we were hoping that we would be able to display these two very distinct but very important attributes of who God is. And what I've heard from people in the congregation and in my small group has been that it's been a unique season for us. We don't typically sit in the chaos of Israel and the kingdom falling apart. And it's been kind of enlightening to be able to see that, wow, not much changes. There are a lot of things in our world that remind us of brokenness. And then when we go to God's word, it turns out that those problems have existed for a really, really long time, almost as if it started at the beginning of things um, in the garden. So what, I, what we're going to do this morning is talk about the book of Habakkuk, which is a great-sounding book. It's one where you really get to, you know, kind of like go to the back of the throne, a Habakkuk. If you really want to be impressive at parties, you know, somebody's, as you do at parties, talk about Habakkuk. You want to be like, no, it's Habakkuk. Um, <laughs> but I want to give you some context about this book because it's typically one that we don't spend a lot of time in, and that's a, that's a real shame. If you would, go ahead and go to uh, chapter one in Habakkuk. It's on page 785 in your pew Bibles because you never know if this is going to go away. And let me tell you a little bit about the structure of this book. So the structure of this book is real interesting. It's unlike any of the other prophets. It's kind of like we started this micro series on unusual prophets. We had Jonah last week, which is an uh, autobiographical prophet. And then this week we get one that demonstrates kind of this, this conversation, this passionate confrontation between Habakkuk and God. Then we go into the second chapter, where it's this prophecy that God hands to Habakkuk. And then we get, in the third chapter, ancient Hebrew poetry. It's a weird book, but it's so rich, and it speaks so directly to us this morning. So what I want to do is I want to read chapter 1 and then go into uh, just the very beginning of chapter two. So, everybody there? Yeah? All right. Habakkuk, chapter one. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you invite us in to conflict, not for conflict's sake, but for the opportunity to see your grace, your wisdom, your love. Lord, will you be with us this morning as we move through your word in Habakkuk? Will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear an openness that can only happen through your spirit. Oh, Lord, we love you so much. May your words go before and let mine fall to the floor. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to just dive right in. So we've got Habakkuk has two complaints, which in your Bible it reads as like his first complaint and then his second complaint. I've never liked that because really Habakkuk's going to God with an initial complaint and that's where his focus is at. He's not thinking like, okay, here's my list of things. His complaint is all encompassing and it's just one. You know, if we read it really shallowly, you know, like we just kind of read it, uh, there's injustice in the world and we move on. It's kind of typical for us to be able to read it and have this impression of like, If you are so powerful, God, why do you let bad things happen? Why why are there bad things in this world? I think that's a pretty normal response. That was my first response when I read it uh, 12 years ago when I became a Christian. This is weird, but this was the first book I read right after I accepted Christ. For whatever reason, that was the one. It wasn't Genesis. It wasn't John. It wasn't Mark. uh, It was... They were too hard for me. I couldn't find a foothold in them, you know? I had no concept of it. But I'm flipping through my Bible, 
and I get to this one where there's a guy saying, the world is a mess, where are you? And I was like, this is a guy who I get. <laughs> I didn't know that you could like go to God and say, like, what's going on? It was a real eye-opener for me. It really hit me hard. You know, I'm, I'm 33, and I was uh, a sophomore in high school during 9-11. That was, you know, if you're in your early 30s, late 20s, that is something that just defined our generation. It kind of opened our eyes to just the brokenness of the world in a universal way. Not to say that others hadn't experienced some level of tragedy, but it kind of brought us into this openness of that there are devastating, horrible things happening in the world. I mean, we moved from 9-11 to something called the war on terror. If you're a sophomore in high school, it's a little bit hard to say like, oh, the world is a good place. There's a war on terror. In December of 2004, there was a massive tsunami that happened off the coast, around the rim of the Indian Ocean. You might remember this. There's been so much in the last 15 years. It's easy to forget something like this where 250,000, 250, no, 250,000 people, yeah, that's a lot of people died because of that. And it this horrible tragedy prompted so many of us again to consider the nature of destruction and why bad things happen in the world. And one editorial writer wrote this, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. And so my question to you all first is, is this Habakkuk's complaint? Is this what he's saying? I don't think so. I think his initial complaint isn't why bad things are happening, because Habakkuk is a man that we have to pay very close attention to, because we don't know that much about him. We know he's identified as a prophet, which means that he was probably a priest. A lot of commentators believe he was probably a Levite priest, because he offers these meditations and these hymns at the end of the book. And so we can safely assume this is a guy who knew his Bible, who had a relationship with God. He had an understanding of theology. So it doesn't seem very reasonable for someone that we can feel safely saying is a responsible or a mature, responsible priest having, and I don't say this in any way diminishing it, but kind of a, a surface level accusation to God. That seems like we're missing a point of him. This is what I think. Look at verse 4. It says this, So the law is paralyzed. He goes on and says, Why do you idly, or excuse me, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He talks about violence. He talks about sin, you know, iniquity. Everything is a mess where he lives. Because everything that his society was built on, he's a faithful Jew, was built on the law, these covenantal promises that God gave his people. And he says it right there in verse 4. The law is paralyzed. The social order that God gave his people isn't actually being followed. 
And so Habakkuk, being a faithful Jew, a man of lots of faith, would know that of course it is. He knows in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God makes his covenantal promise with his people. Follow my commands. Be my people and the blessings will come. He knows this. He knows this character of God. So that's not the problem. He's going, you know, he's going to God saying everything is a mess because everything's a mess because we don't do what we're supposed to do. Do you see where I'm going? I'm, I'm trying to break us out of like kind of this simplistic mindset of what Habakkuk might be saying to you this morning, which is there is absolutely destruction and evil and injustice in the world. But we have to be careful not to capture it and put it into our context as if Habakkuk was speaking directly in our context right now. What he's talking about is the law being paralyzed, the social order, no one's following God. Maybe it's a little closer to our context than what we initially think. This is Habakkuk's real complaint. Go with me on this. You are the one God. You're the one who saves his people despite our failure to keep the covenant. We've seen example after example of this. You show up in our failures, but now you aren't. This doesn't sound like the character of God, this deeply held relationship, everything that I know about you. This doesn't make sense to me. What Habakkuk is talking about is a relational issue. He has a deep and wonderful amount of faith in God's covenantal promises, I believe we can say. And his response is one of shock because he believes God is not acting in how God describes his own character. I mean, think about it. Think about a relationship that has a lot of depth in your life, whether it's a spouse or with parents or with a sibling, and they start to do things that are way out of character. You're not sitting there, like, immediately and going, what a hypocrite. Maybe. I mean, you might have some stuff you got to work out with those relationships. But if it's a caring, deep relationship that's life-giving, your initial response is not to quickly judge and get to them. You wanna, you're observing something, and you're wondering, like, what is going on there? I think this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's hit this point of needing to express to God, things are out of alignment because it seems like you're out of alignment. And then, shockingly, God responds. He responds directly to Habakkuk. I don't know what Habakkuk was expecting in this prayer, this, this complaint to God. I mean, how many of us go to God with complaints, with woes, with things that are troubling us? And we, I think we expect a response, but God directly speaking to Habakkuk, that might have thrown him for a loop. Look at verse 5 in chapter 1. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. And this is where maybe Habakkuk's just like, yes, okay, you're back on track. You're with me. And then God goes through the rest of chapter 1, saying some things 
that are deeply disturbing. Basically, to summarize, he said, you know those Chaldeans, those Babylonians? Those ones that have that outside reputation, they're coming through, they are kicking butt, they are taking over. I'm going to raise them up. All the language that I traditionally use for my people, Israel, I'm going to now put on them. I'm going to raise them up. I'm also going to fully admit, I know exactly who they are. But I'm going to use... I'm going to use this evil nation to bring about restorative justice to my people. So imagine you're going to God with this concrete complaint about what's going on in your life, and then you get a direct response from God, and his direct response is terrifying. And you know, God's used a variety of ways that really surprise us and how he deals with the problem of evil. Habakkuk would have been able to recall those. It's not that this is so outside the frame of reference that God would raise up, or it is and it isn't. I mean, when in Genesis, God uses the flood to wipe out all of the evil in the world. We also see in the Exodus, God uses this extreme measure of the Passover, of wiping out every firstborn of Egypt. But what's made those things distinct is he's always offered a place of refuge for his people. We have the devastation of the flood, but we have the ark. He preserves Noah and his family. We have the Passover, but we have the sacrifice of the lamb to where Israel's first sons were safe. There's no language of that in God's response to Habakkuk. It's just simply, I'm going to raise these people up. They're going to come in. They're going to judge Israel. Have a nice day. Now, Habakkuk has a follow-up complaint to that, as you might imagine. So his initial complaint is about God's character, and now his response is that, whoa, this is even more out of character. Look at verse 13. It puts it so well. He says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You're so holy. You're so good. You can't even look at evil. And yet you're going to raise these Babylonians, this evil empire that doesn't know you? How does this make sense? And so um, in this complaint language, Habakkuk raises this to God, and then he does something really remarkable. How would you respond if God had given you that direct um, articulation of what he was going to do amidst the conflict, the problems that you were seeing in your life? And then you voice this um, next complaint. He airs this to God. He says, this isn't in your character. And then he says two things. I'm going to wait and I'm going to listen for the Lord's response. And then secondly, I will respond to this response in some kind of way. It's there in chapter 2, verse 1. He says this specifically. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. 
Habakkuk is looking to do something with what God is calling him to do. And then God answers him again. And he says something really peculiar. Starting in verse 2, he says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Write this down. Why would he say, write this down? He wants it to be able to be read. He wants it to be able to be delivered to other people. This is where we get to take a break from Habakkuk for a second, and we go to um, Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. <laughs> this is where you get like kind of caught up in your notes and making sure you're going in the right order and you forget it's not available on the screen. <laughs> Sorry. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is where we get the concept of gospel. This is good news. It's a message being delivered to the people. N.T. Wright, a scholar and theologian, put it like this. You can really take this gospel message and categorize it into three points. One, Babylon is defeated. Two, Israel free from exile. Three, Yahweh's personal presence, God's personal presence, would dwell in Israel again. That was the Israelites after the exile. That was their hope in the gospel, the hope in this good news. It's a kind of a, an echo of a gospel language that we would think about today. And so throughout chapter 2, we get a good news message delivered to us, to Habakkuk. God, I'm not going to talk about it, like go real in depth, but God promises actually that, hey, I hate sin. And I see these Babylonians and justice is coming for them. I promise this. He's writing, he wants Habakkuk to write it down to instill a faith and a hope that God's character is un changing. This is familiar language to Habakkuk. And so we move into chapter 3, and we see this beautiful reflective prayer based on what God has shared with him in chapter 2. And Habakkuk uses this extraordinary prayer. And really what he does is he goes to the character and nature of, um, of God, and he reflects on what God has done in the past and two specific events in Israel's history. The first is going to be when God came to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And he uses this incredible language. He says, if we're in chapter 3, he says in verse 3, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. He's so magnificent, the heavens are echoing it. 
we see this interesting language of it saying that pestilence and plague follow at his heels. What they're saying is that he is king above all kings. He has ambassadors and they are pestilence and plague. You think that your royal ambassadors have anything on pestilence and plague? He is over all of these things. He's mighty. And then he kind of flips it on us and he goes back to the actual exodus from Egypt. And we get to see God taking on this um, this character of how Eugene Peterson likes to paraphrase it as the God of the angel armies. I love that. And so we get to see some characteristics of it. It says that he rode on horses, a chariot of salvation across the water. He used arrows that pierce. He uses a spear that impales. It's like lightning. The enemy's head is going to be crushed and he's laid bare. This is a reflection on God's immense power. This is good news for Habakkuk. And you know, this good news does come to pass. Israel is brought out of exile. Why? Because the Persians beat Babylon. They conquered them. But there's a problem with this good news if we just keep it on this surface level. Yeah, Israel was brought out of exile, but it was a rocky road back to Jerusalem. It wasn't this triumphant reentry where everything clicked. And Persia defeats Babylon, but then Rome would beat Persia. And then Rome would be conquered by the barbarians. And this endless cycle continues. Violent, sinful, idolatrous nations, they just continue to rise up to power. And what do they do? They crush the weak. And they eventually get conquered to start it all over again. Even worse is that Yahweh's personal presence doesn't come back to the temple. Go look at Malachi. The people are adrift in Malachi. This is good news. But it's good news with foresight, or with hindsight, excuse me. It's remarkable that Habakkuk in chapter 3 will go on to give this prayerful and worshipful response. If you look at um, verse 18 and 19 in chapter 3, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. How does this inspire such worship? I mean, just seriously. I know it's in the Bible. I know that we're conditioned to be able to be like, oh, yeah, I feel that too. But like seriously, endless cycle of nations conquering other nations and crushing the weak. God's presence not returning to the temple. How does that fill us with worship? If we just stay here, it won't. Not lasting worship. 
You know, I, this is heavy, I'm sorry. Um, but it's heavy because there's a lot of hope here. Because there's a transition we need to make to the gospel message that we know. It really dawned on me. Um, I've started going through Romans and there's this uh, part in Romans 1.1 where Paul gets real specific all of a sudden. He said the gospel before, but then he says this. It's the gospel of God. You know, in chapter 2, verse 3 of Habakkuk, God says something remarkable that's easy to flip through. He says... Um, He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is the gospel of God that Paul is talking about in the book of Romans. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus. Go back and look at chapter 3 again in Habakkuk. This reflection. This is a long promised conquering of evil. What we see Habakkuk saying that God comes to meet his people. He does, but it's not clothed in the power and the might of the heavens at Mount Sinai, but it's in the flesh. It's in the form of a baby. It's man. Instead of these ambassadors of pestilence and plague and these incredible supernatural things, it's shepherds and it's donkeys. God's inverting things. It's mind-blowing. Instead of God calling on arrows to pierce the enemy's shield and their armor, the enemy's going to use nails to pierce his hands and his feet. Instead of a spear that was used on the enemy, the enemy will use a spear in Jesus' side. The enemy will lay Jesus bare on the cross and believe it has crushed his head. This is the gospel message that we get to live out and know because here's what happens because of this inversion. Here's what happens because of the good news of the gospel. Sin, the greatest enemy, has been defeated. Not just Israel, all of humanity is brought out of exile. And we're now justified and able to be fully and perfectly in the presence of God. We enter into God's presence. We don't need a temple or a building for that presence to dwell Jesus is our temple. 
And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, fills us and gives us that opportunity to be in his presence. So when we see Habakkuk's response of worship, we don't only have it, but we get to magnify it. We get to magnify that because it's our faith. It's our salvation. When Habakkuk is saying that he's, um, that the Lord is his strength, that it's his salvation, he's using that personal relationship. He's talking about something that isn't a religious practice. He's talking about something that goes deeper than that. So how do we walk this out? Because the temptation, I promise you, because I am the most guilty of this, I was just talking to my wife about it in the car this morning, is that I just want to take like these insights from God and I want to just plug them into my head and I want to just be like, okay, I've got a new set of morals, I've got a new set of ways to walk in the world and that will solve my problems. I'll be a good person now. Because Jesus was good, so I'm going to live like Jesus. And that's so true, but it's just the surface level. Here's a depth as we start to close. All of reality has shifted. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, was not something that just happened to exist in my own little personal space. It changed the course of history, of reality. All things are made new because of him. And so we're able, as Paul puts it in Colossians 3, able to move and put off the old self and put on the new. I don't know what you're going through in this life. I know some of you, I know some of your struggles, I know some of the pain that you're dealing with. But I can't prescribe some perfect application for you to start doing in your life. This isn't a five steps to a healthier marriage as prescribed by Jay. Um, I love my wife. She'll be the first one to tell you I should not prescribe like anything. Uh, So what we want to do this morning is something a little different. We want to encourage a time of reflection. And I want to walk you through it because there are three things that we want to mirror in this time. We want to be able to prayerfully go before God. And so there will be music going on, and um, I'm not sure if lyrics are going to be able to be on the screen or not. But this isn't a call for you to stand and worship, although if you feel that, go for it. This is an opportunity to sink in and think about God's presence in your life. So there are three things that we're going to walk through. But here's what I want to do more than anything. Um, I've I've asked a few people in our congregation um, to serve as uh, ambassadors of prayer. Oh, that sounds so lame. But people that we have seen evidence of a prayerful life, who are bold in their prayers, who love others so well, I want to invite them to go ahead and go to their places. They're going to be positioned around the room. They're going to have those candles. And church, 
we don't do a good job of going to people in prayer. It's difficult and complicated and hard. And it exposes a vulnerability we may not be comfortable with. But I want to invite you into this. I want you to take the opportunity to go with your brothers and sisters and reflect. So that's what's going to happen. They're going to start playing. But here's what I want to invite you into, a prayerful time. We'll go ahead and bring the lights to a more reflective place. Take this time individually with those who, my prayer people, I'll start calling you out by name. (laughs) You guys can go ahead and go to your spots. Let me give a, a brief moment of silence and let me tell you what I want you to focus your mind and your heart on. First, what are those complaints that you have before God? What are those things that you've either been going to him time and time again or have never felt the courage to do so? Take some time as we begin to hear music that's an appropriation of Psalm 62 where David feels that onslaught of persecution, of conflict. Go before God in your conflict. I'll guide you in the next in just a moment. God alone, my soul inside this way. For God alone, my soul inside. Hello, hello. 
he gives, he rejoices in the Lord, and he does so in both a practical way and in a cosmic way. He states that his circumstances are not going to dictate his relationship with the God who has brought strength and salvation to him. It's a hymn. It's worship. We're really good at going before the Lord about the things that we struggle with. We need to take time to worship him for what he's done for us. That's what this time is for now. Whether it's David's words of God being his salvation and those become your words or whether they're put in your own way. Take this time to as cheesy as it sounds. Let your heart write the song to God it's been dying to write. Thank you. 